Well, again, if you have a Bible, we're in Mark chapter 10, page 845. Self-fulfillment, self-realization, self-gratification are for many Uh, the modern-day description of a good life, with the main priority there being my personal happiness, self-fulfillment. Whatever whatever makes me happy, that's what what, what I'll do. So if it makes me happy, why wouldn't I do that? That might be an approach that you have heard before. Well, when this agenda finds its way into marriage, divorce becomes an option in the pursuit of this happiness for many. I want a happy life, and this marriage might not be providing me that, therefore, divorce. Certainly that's not the only reason for divorces, but certainly this idea of self-fulfillment, this idea of personal gratification and happiness uh, is a main focus. And yet, time after time, the stories that we hear are not full of fulfillment and happiness in divorce, but rather full of bitterness and brokenness. John Piper has said, death is usually clean pain, while divorce is usually dirty pain. Now, this is also not to say that happiness cannot be found in marriage or that you can't have a happy marriage. That's not obviously what we're saying either. Uh, But if you are looking, if we are looking to marriage to give us happiness, we're looking in the wrong place, right? And we may be disappointed. Marriage is primarily about God's glory, about our holiness more than our happiness. Uh, In our passage this morning, Jesus was confronted with the subject matter of divorce. You can see the heading in my Bible says, teaching about divorce ahead of chapter, chapter 10. Uh, it is today, as it was then, a controversial matter. Right? Many of us have our, our, our ideas about divorce, our, our thoughts about divorce as there were at this time. Uh, divorce is a problem today. It has not gone away. This, this issue that Jesus faced is an issue that we face even today. Uh, divorce I- is a problem, but popular statistics have not accurately framed the situation. Uh, many of us have probably heard a divorce rate of something like 50%. Maybe you've, you've heard a statistic like that. Well, in Wayne Grudem's book on divorce and remarriage, he writes this. After extensive statistical analysis, social researcher Shanti Feldhan, Feldhan, that's how we'll say that, uh, reported this in 2014. According to one of the most recent Census Bureau surveys, 72% of people who have been married are still married to their first spouse. 72%. And the remaining 28% are not all divorced persons because the total also includes those who have been widowed through the death of a spouse a category that accounts for perhaps as many as 8%. So that suggests that somewhere around 20 to 25% of first marriages end in divorce. Feldhahn continues, 
Imagine the difference to our collective consciousness if we say most marriages last a lifetime rather than half of marriages end in divorce. Interesting. That said, divorce is an issue, and it's an issue that the church faces. Many of us have heard that the divorce rate in the church is that of the same in the world. If you think it was 50% in the world, then sometimes people think it's 50% in the church. Well, back to Feldhahn, her research says that the, the rate of divorce is actually significantly lower for those who attend church regularly. How much lower? Roughly 25 to 50% lower. 25 to 50% lower than what? Than the 72% of the, the, the rate that she already talked about. This is quite a difference, right? Uh, nevertheless, divorce is real. It's a present issue as it was in Jesus' time. And Jesus' teaching here in Mark 10 was to help his followers understand the issue better. Today is October 31st. And many people think of today as Halloween. But if you're a Protestant, it's actually Reformation Day. In 1517, the reformer, Martin Luther, nailed to the door, the church door in Wittenberg, 95 theses related to the, the needed reformation in the Catholic Church. And that began what was called the Protestant Reformation, right? this movement to get back to the heart of the gospel, to get back to the five solas, which they would boil down to, right? In Christ, in Christ alone, by faith alone, through, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, and the word of God alone. Right? From, this, from this reformation, from this, uh, this Protestant reformation came a popular Latin phrase called semper, semper reformata, semper reformata, which means always reforming. And from the Reformation came this idea that the church needs to always be reforming, meaning there, there's always work to be done. There's always areas where, where we have drifted, areas where we need to come back to the teachings of the Scriptures. There's a great need for continual reformation in the church today, even on the issue of marriage, that Jesus addressed some 2,000 years ago. And may God give us ears to hear it today. So as we come into chapter 10, Jesus had left, has left Capernaum and the region of Galilee and is heading towards Judea. So he was in the region of Galilee, which is in the north, and he's headed down to Judea in the south. This would be his final journey to Judea as he would eventually enter the triumphal entry, you remember that, into the city of Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be crucified and buried, but then three days later, rise from the dead. But before all of that, he came to Judea. Look at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again as was his custom, he taught them. So as Jesus comes to Judea, so do the crowds. Right? And, and as they come again to him, he does what again? He teaches them again. Now, Jesus did not pass up an opportunity to teach. 
He didn't pass up an opportunity to instruct these people, to help them understand the truth. That's what Jesus was about. But we also know that not everybody wants to understand. Right? Not everybody is out to, to, to really know what the truth even is. And so as Jesus comes back to Judea, we also find that there's some other people who come. Look at verse 2. And they come with a question. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And we have said this before, but what we know of the, the Pharisees is that they were not good-willed men, meaning they were not asking this question to actually understand. They didn't actually want Jesus to help them with their understanding of divorce. They were trying to test him or to, to trap him. Their question was disingenuous, but the question was concerning the legality of divorce. Now, uh, this issue of, of people's uh, marriages, um, adultery, and, and things of that nature, had gotten John the Baptist into some pretty hot water with Herod. You remember that, leading to his death. So potentially, the Pharisees could have been using this as an opportunity to try to stir up Herod against Jesus. This worked, this worked uh, for, for getting rid of John the Baptist. Maybe it'll work for getting rid of Jesus. Nevertheless, what we do know is that divorce was a controversial issue in Judaism. And the issue centered on the Old Testament's teaching on divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, this is said to be the only passage in the Old Testament stating the grounds or procedures for divorce. Now, we won't read uh, those verses, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, if you want to look at that. But, but the, the, the controversy or the issue related to um, revolved around this idea of what, what some indecency, the language is some indecency. So a man could divorce his wife, uh, this is verse 1, if, he, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So what is the indecency? Right? That's the issue. Uh, this led to two primary uh, schools of thought in, in the Jewish world in the, uh, re, re, uh, the, among rabbis. And, and the first is the school of Hillel, who held to the widest interpretation and the most lenient interpretation. They basically concluded uh, divorce was legal for any reason. Any reason. So if... If your wife spoiled dinner, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is, this is, this is part of their, their, their examples. If she ran out uh, with her hair down, if she was out with her, her, her hair down, if she spoke to a man on the street, or if she spoke disrespectfully of her mother-in-law. Here are some of the examples of the, the insane ideas that, that justified divorce. Right? This is uh, really what we actually would call no-fault divorce. These aren't actually faults, right? These are just ways to justify doing something. Well, that, that's the first school of thought. Uh, the second is the school of Sh Shammai, who was more strict. They interpreted the sum indecency as only premarital sin. So if, if the husband were to find out about something that happened, uh, a, a premarital sin, uh, then he would have the right to divorce her. Uh, some suggest that, that they actually believe that it was any marital impropriety. Other than, idol, other than adultery, 
Right? Those would be justifications uh, for divorce. Uh, you can see how this stricter version and this more lenient version would cause a problem. Right? It would lead to very different ideas about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage. Uh, these conclusions are not compatible. In Matthew's gospel, he records the Pharisees' question a little bit differently. He writes this, saying that Jesus said this, it is lawful to divorce one's wife. The question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So that's the question the Pharisees are posing to Jesus. Can, can we divorce for, for any reason? They're, they're trying to draw him into this controversy. Right? There's these two schools of thought. There's the stricter and this more lenient. And they're trying to say to Jesus, which one is it? Which one is it? Pick a side here. But Jesus would not be pulled into the controversy. He would not play their games. Look at verse 3. And he answered them, what did Moses command you? What did he command you? Jesus was not going to pick one uh, rabbinical school versus the other. Right? He kept to the scriptures. Listen, that is a great principle for us. We, we get pulled into this all the time. About what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What's your opinion? How about we just stick to the scriptures? What, is, what does God say about marriage and divorce? Let's stick to the scriptures. And Jesus does just that by pointing them back to Moses. And the Pharisees respond in verse 4. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, they're not wrong. Deuteronomy 24 does say that the certificate of divorce has been put into place by Moses. But why? Why did they do that? What was the reason for that? So Jesus responds here with an explanation concerning that certificate. So yes, there is an allowance for divorce, but why was that? Look at verse 5. Jesus gives an explanation to the Pharisees in verses five through nine. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this command. Right, so, so divorce was not the original plan, but it was permitted because of their hard hearts, meaning their sinfulness, because of the reality of sin, because of the reality of, of, of sinning against one another. Warren Wiersbe writes this, by giving this command to Israel, God was not putting his approval on divorce or even encouraging it. Rather, he was seeking to restrain it and make it more difficult for men to dismiss their wives. He put sufficient regulation around divorce so that wives would be, not become victims of their husband's whims. Like there was this, this no-fault divorce situation happening. And Moses is, is putting uh, some regulations around it. John Piper writes this, divorce is never commanded and never instituted in the Old Testament, but it was permitted and regulated. Like polygamy was permitted and regulated, and certain kinds of slavery were permitted and regulated, and Jesus says here that this permission was not a reflection of God's ideal for his people, it was a reflection of the hardness of the human heart. So, so the, the Pharisees and some people are looking at it and saying, see, we got a certificate of, of divorce. He's letting us divorce. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you know why? 
It's not because he's approving of it. It's because that's the, the, the hardness of the heart of man. It's because of our sinfulness in the protection of those who would be vulnerable. Well, Jesus then pivots from explaining the certificate to explaining the ideal, the original plan, or what we could call the creation ordinance of marriage. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So of this issue, of this question about divorce, Jesus points them to Moses, and then he reaches back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And he does so to ground his teaching actually in the Old Testament. This is also certifying the Old Testament as Jesus is using these words. And he says, in the beginning, right, from the start, from the start, divorce wasn't even in the picture. Divorce wasn't even a thing. It was inconceivable. It didn't happen. But by using these texts from Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus is affirming several important points regarding marriage and divorce. We're going to look at four this morning. And the first thing that Jesus affirms is God's authority over marriage. We see that in, in those, three, those four verses, 6, 7, 8, and 9. That he says, from the beginning, from the start, from creation, what God made and God has joined it, it's God who created this. It's God who established marriage. And so, so if we get that wrong, if we get the idea of what marriage is disconnected from who established it, we're going to get the wrong conclusion, right? If you start in the wrong place, you're going to end in the wrong place. So we got to get the origin right. We got to get the, the foundation right. And here Jesus is saying it's from the beginning. It's God's design. It's God's, God established marriage. Jesus is acknowledging and affirming his authority. If God is the creator, then it's God who calls the shots. He has the authority to do so. Jesus first affirms God's authority. Secondly, Jesus affirmed God's design. Look at verse 6. God made them male and female. Male and female. Now, unless you have been living under a rock somewhere, you know that currently basic biology, um, the, the foundational concepts of, of civilization, of how life works, um, and by that I am referring to gender, is under attack. Uh, the idea of, of two genders, and only two genders, is in question. We, we call this the, the, the gender binary, right? where there's only two, and they are fixed. That you are what you are, right? This idea, God made them male and female. God did that. He did it. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. Your doctor didn't do it. Your parent didn't do it. 
God did it, male and female. And there are only two. There are only two. Now, if you, if you are um, in some contexts today, there is a movement afoot to try to explain how there can be more than two. Or, or to try to explain how you can, um, how gender can be malleable. Or to say that, that sex and gender can be separated from one another. And you can be biologically a man, but identify as a female, right? This is insanity. It is absolute insanity. And it's a complete disconnection from creation. This is what happens when you disconnect your view of the world from the Bible. We need to connect ourselves to the Bible. Students, college students, young people and old people alike, but young people are, are having to deal with this in ways that I, I'm a lot younger than some of you, but I didn't have to deal with this kind of stuff. And most of you didn't have to deal with this kind of stuff. And our young people are having to deal with it. And unless and until they connect to the, the creation ordinance, unless and until they recognize that it, God has designed this thing, it is not up for debate. But if you unhitch it from God, it is. Your opinion is no better than mine. Right, so if we disconnect, if we eliminate the biblical mandates here, if we remove God from being creator, then everybody's opinion is equal. You understand that? So the argument isn't just God created, but, but there's an argument then for, for why that is, and an argument for why the Bible actually is God's word. There's multiple layers to this argument. But as we reject the Bible, as we reject God as creator, we put ourselves where? In the place of the creator. We get to choose who we are. We get to choose what we are. We, we, can, we can make ourselves into something else, we think. This is Isaiah chapter 50, 45, verse 9. It says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. <laughs> that sound right? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Woe to the person, let me just say it more clearly, woe to the person who strives with God who made him. Does that sound like anything that's happening right now? A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. When we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, we try to play God. We put ourselves into the place of God. And we are in no, such, we are in, in no place to do such. God made them male and female. And guess what? That's good. That is good. Young person, the way God made you is good. You are, you are made by God the way you are. If you're a female, you're, you're made by God and that is beautiful and that is good. It's not a mistake. Yes, you might have feelings 
You might, ha- you might have questions. That's okay. You can ask your questions. God's not afraid of your questions. But don't mistake your questions for the truth. <laughs> don't mistake the confusion in the world as reality. Perception is not reality. I wish people would stop saying that. It's not. Reality is reality. In God's wisdom and in his goodness, he created you. And if there's someone here today who's who's questioning that, hear it again. He made you male and female. God made you the way you are. God made you as a, a boy or as a girl. He did that. He did that for your good. He did that for his glory. It's actually how the world functions. It's actually how how humanity functions. It's, It's not malleable. It's God's design and Jesus affirmed it. So if someone wants to cast off the Old Testament as archaic and what did they know? Jesus is affirming it. Align with Jesus. If you want to you get into an argument with somebody, Jesus still seems like a pretty good ally, right? People still kind of like Jesus. So uh, align with Jesus. They might discount the Old Testament, but align with Jesus. What does Jesus say about this? Jesus says that God made them male and female. That's the design. But not only did he affirm that, he affirmed God's plan, God's pattern, excuse me, in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here we see the forming of a new family. As the the man leaves father and mother and holds fast or clings to one wife, one woman. This is the divine pattern. One man and one woman. Now again, you might hear people say, well, Jesus never really said anything about homosexuality. And Jesus didn't really say anything about same-sex or or so-called same-sex marriage. So if you read through the Gospels, you might say, well, I think they might be right. Like, Jesus didn't say something about homosexuality explicitly, did he? Well, right here in Mark chapter 10, what Jesus is doing is he is affirming God's pattern for marriage. And by affirming God's pattern for marriage, he is implying that all other unions are not legitimate marriages. That's what he's doing. He didn't have to say no to all or every kind of failed deviation when he affirmed the original pattern. He affirmed the original pattern. One man and one woman. And this pattern is not arbitrary. The pieces are not interchangeable. This isn't like, well, maybe we could put a different, a different person here, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. That, that doesn't work. That's not the divine pattern. It is the marital union of a man and a woman that God, uh, that is the, the fulfillment of God's pattern. Right? So so-called same-sex marriage actually is nothing of the sorts. It is not marriage. It isn't. It might be a civil union. It's not marriage. By definition, marriage, if God established marriage, then God defines marriage. And if God defines marriage as one man and one woman, then that is the pattern. You and I don't get to change up the pattern. We don't get to sub in and out pieces and say that's marriage. It's not. 
Again, it might be a civil union. It's not marriage, and it's different. Why is it different? Because a man and a woman together actually image something. The New Testament tells us that marriage is actually this, this picture of Christ and the church. Now, some of us, when we got married, we were not thinking about Christ in the church when we got married, right? We were thinking about our spouse, right? We, we were our spouse-to-be. We weren't really thinking about what we're displaying spiritually. But that marriage, the union, is actually a display of Christ in the church. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that it's the husband who images the, the Christ role and the wife who images the church. So what does that mean? That means that you can't sub out parts, you can't switch the parts in and out. You lose the image. If you lose the image, the, what it was created for, what the union was intended for is lost. It's not just that that, that that kind of union doesn't affect me, right? That's one of the arguments. What do you care? Love is love. Well, that's not the argument, by the way. If someone tells you that, love is love, why do you care? That's not the argument. Of course, anybody can love anybody. No one's stopping someone from loving someone. That's dumb. They're changing the argument. That's not the argument. The issue isn't you can love who you want to love. The issue is you can't redefine what God has defined. That's the issue. And when they change the question, when they change the objection, now you look like an idiot. Now we look like an idiot. How can you stop someone from loving someone else? We're not stopping from, someone, from loving someone else. We're defending and upholding the, the, the creation ordinance of marriage as one man and one woman. Why? Because God made it for a reason. Not because you're a, a, a right-winger. Not because you're conservative. Not because you're a traditionalist. Because it images something that God is doing in the world. It's showing to the world what Christ and the church is. Which is of infinite importance that we don't always gather the significance of. Verse eight continues, and the two shall become one, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. Again, this is Genesis chapter two, verse 24. The uniting together as one, this kind of intimacy, this, this two becoming one is only possible between a man and a woman in marriage. It is not possible in any other scenario. It isn't. I don't need to get more graphic than that, but it isn't. It is only possible between a man and a woman in marriage. It's all about the creation design. It's all about God's authority over it. It's not about how I feel. It's not about how you feel. It's not about our cultural moment. It's not about the, sex, the, the, the uh, sexual or secular revolution. It's about what God has created. It's that God has created marriage and he defines it. The sacred pattern here is one man, one woman, two becoming one. Jesus affirmed that. Finally, Jesus affirmed God's expectation. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the, the word man there is not talking about man versus woman. The word man there is talking about human versus divine. So he's saying, no, let no human separate. So he's not saying that 
Deuteronomy that the man can give his wife a bill of divorce. That's not the man here. The man here is talking about humanity. That no, no, no human can separate this marriage, only God. The expectation for all marriages here is permanence. The length of a marriage is to be until death. There is no separating what God has joined together as a marriage, as a marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant, not just between two people, not just between the witnesses that are uh, there, but before God. Malachi chapter two calls it a, a covenant. A covenant is something far different than a, than a commitment or an agreement or a contraction, contract. God is not messing around here when it comes to marriage. It is serious and it is sacred. And couples need to be aware of God's expectations. You may have heard some variation of this sentence at a wedding. Marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, soberly, and in the fear of God. It's a good sentence. More marriages need to take it seriously. J.C. Ryle says, the nearer a nation's laws about marriage approach the law of Christ, the higher has the moral tone of that nation always proved to be. That the closer our laws come to the law of Christ, the moral tone of that nation is higher. And we can see the opposite, can't we? The further we go from it, the lower the moral tone goes. May God help us. Marriage is glorious, but it is serious. And so after hearing this teaching, the disciples want to ask some more questions about this topic. And in verses 10 and 11, Jesus then explains some things to the disciples. Look at it in verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. You remember the disciples frequently do this. They wait till everyone goes away and then they ask their question, right? They maybe don't want to, maybe a little embarrassed, need some clarification. So Jesus clarifies in verse 11 and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now Mark gets straight to the point here, doesn't he? Mark's not messing around. Mark doesn't even include the exception clause that Matthew does. Luke doesn't include it either. We'll look at it in a minute. But the likely reason that he doesn't include any exception in regard to sexual morality or adultery was because that wasn't in question. The Jews didn't have a problem with that. Um, divorce wasn't the consequence of adultery. You know what the consequence for adultery was? Death. It was stoning. So they, they weren't worried about the exception of sexual morality. They, they all agreed upon that. Um, but they lived in a Roman-occupied place. So to get a, a death sentence against your spouse was, was hard to come by. So they substituted death for divorce, right? And so that was known to be, accepted to be a, uh, a justification or an exception, a reasonable exception for divorce. But the Pharisees, again, what are they asking? They're asking, can the divorce be legal for any, any reason? for any, any cause. And Jesus is making the case that according to God's creation ordinance on marriage, the answer is no. Not for any cause. Not for just any cause. But because of the sinfulness or the hard-heartedness of mankind, there is a permissible exemption. And Matthew records that exemption when he says, whoever divorces his wife 
here's the clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So if we look back to verse 11 and 12, with that exemption, what Jesus is saying, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for, in the case of sexual morality, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, except in the case of sexual morality, she commits adultery. So the exception clause is there. The exception clause is in the case of, or except for, sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, or pornea. That's where we get our word pornography. It's a broad term for sexual sin, sexual immorality. It includes sexual inter illicit sexual intercourse. It includes uh, adultery and homosexuality and bestiality. So in the case of pornea, Jesus is saying, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, that divorce is permissible. It's allowable. He's not saying it, it has to be. He's not commanding it to be. He's saying it is permissible. We should say here that the first question to any couple contemplating divorce for any reason should be, can this marriage be saved? What steps of reconciliation and restoration can be taken in order that this marriage be saved? That is always the best, the best course, always. Once that is proven to be impossible, then, marriage, then divorce may be uh, pursued. But Jesus was teaching here that any divorce that takes place for reasons other than pornea is illegitimate. That's what he's saying. He's also saying that to marry another after an illegitimate divorce is to commit adultery. Why would he say that? Well, adultery only occurs with married people. So, what is he saying about the marriage? He's saying that the marriage has not been separated in God's eyes. If, it's, if there's no biblical exception. Now, does that mean that the second marriage isn't a real marriage? No, that's not what it means. If you look at Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 11 again, he says, well, whosoever divorces his wife and marries another. So he's acknowledging that the marriage is still a marriage. He's just saying that it, it began in adultery. But just because it began in adultery doesn't mean it, it continues to be adultery. Do we understand that? So, so if you know someone who, who's divorced for unbiblical reasons and remarried, that doesn't mean their, their second marriage is a sham, that they should divorce their, their spouse. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying it began a certain way, yes, and that's not okay, it's, it's unfortunate, but that doesn't mean it's an illegitimate marriage going forward. Listen, there, there's so much to be said about this, right? There's, there's Matthew chapter 5 that we can look at. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with the Apostle Paul's teaching on the exception for um, being deserted by an unbelieving spouse. There's much to be said on this topic. There's books and books and books that have been written on divorce and marriage and, and remarriage. Uh, there are sermons, thousands of sermons. You've probably heard sermons on the, these topics already. There are, there are so many things to be said. Yet in every case, every case, there are unique nuances to those situations, right? 
we understand what the biblical principles are here. But, but to be honest, we need to recognize that, that there are unique challenges that every marriage or divorce carries. It requires careful and wisdom to administer correctly the word of God. In summation, we could say this. Jesus was not interested in being pulled into the Pharisees' controversy. Right? He's not going to be pulled into what they were, they were squabbling about. He saw divorce as a deviation from God's original plan. He saw that, that divorce was permitted or was allowed in the case of sexual immorality, but not for just any reason. Jesus here upholds the creation ordinance of marriage as the standard. His point was not about reaffirming Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, but affirming God's standard in Genesis 1 and 2, that marriage is a covenantal union between one man and one woman who become one flesh until separated by God in death. Now, you may be sitting here this morning uh, and you've been quite uncomfortable with this topic, and if that's true, then you can join the club. <laughs> Uh, about the uncomfortable part. Um, maybe you have experienced divorce in your own life. Maybe your family, or maybe you know someone who has. And maybe those situations uh, were done so without any biblical grounds to do so. And maybe as you look back upon that, you recognize that now. First, we, we want to affirm that it is true. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says, God says, for I hate divorce. It is not God's plan. God hates it. But you know what else? God hates all sin. He hates my pride. He hates impurity. He hates gossip. He hates a lot of sin. He hates all sin. Just because God hates it does not mean that divorce is the unforgivable sin. And that's not to downplay divorce. We know it causes real and lasting damage. But it is to say that there is forgiveness available to all who will confess their sin. Everyone. My sin, your sin, all sin. Isn't that amazing? All sin. And being forgiven by God means that he is not holding your sin against you anymore. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good to know? And God's not holding your sin over you. He's not saying, yeah, but you know what you, you did? It's not what God's doing. Unbiblical divorces, divorces outside of the biblical exemption, exceptions, here in Mark chapter 10, it is clear that is sin. But far too many in the church have deemed divorce as the scarlet letter. The scarlet letter which Jesus did not do. My sin, your sin, all sin is in need of the same forgiveness. Divorce does not require a different kind of forgiveness. It doesn't. 
It requires the same forgiveness that I need. This forgiveness we know is available. John, 1 John 1, 9. But the reason that it's available is because of what Christ has done. Our sin, your sin, my sin, required Jesus to suffer, to die in our place for our sins. So because of my pride, Jesus had to die. Because of your divorce, Jesus had to die. Because of your gossip and your backbiting and jealousy or greed or impure thoughts that we have, whatever the case is, Jesus had to die for that sin. And as he died for that sin, forgiveness became available because Jesus is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he took it away in order that we could be forgiven, in order that we could experience new life, in order that we could have the hope of heaven. So brother and sister, whatever your past is, know this, that you are not the sum of your sins. You are more than that. You are much more than that. In fact, Christian, your past and your sins are not who you are. That is not who you are. In Christ, you have a new identity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are new creations. Old things have passed away. You're not what you once were. We can thank God for that. John Newton said, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope I will be. But this I know, I'm not what I will be. One day I will be something better. Right? I, I can look back and say, man, I am not where I should be, but I know that one day I will be. And that day is coming, but that day isn't quite yet. And we need God's forgiveness. We need his renewal. We need his restoration. We need a new identity. And that comes through his son. So today, of our sins, we repent. We recognize God's forgiveness through his son. And then according to his word, Romans chapter 6, we walk in the newness of life, empowered by the Spirit, affirming God's good plan, part of which, as we saw this morning, is the creation ordinance ordinance of marriage. We uphold God's good design by living it out. They say, but, but what, I, what I did in the past was X, Y, and Z. The past is in the past. We can't go back. How do we, how do we uphold God's good plan now? Wherever you're at, you live to the glory of God wherever you're at now. You uphold the creation ordinance of marriage now. One man, one woman, for life, two becoming one, never separated, but in death. To God be the glory, and may he help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, we pray for your help today. We need you. We recognize that our sin is a problem. It's a problem that we can't fix. We're so thankful for your kindness 
and your grace through your son who paid for our sins that we could be forgiven. That we recognize that as Jesus teaches about divorce here, there are some who may need to repent this morning. For others, Matthew chapter 5 says that even if we look upon a woman to lust, we've committed adultery in our heart. For others, they need to repent this morning too. And in both cases, receive the forgiveness of Jesus available through his work on the cross, for which we give thanks this morning. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Would you help us, God? Would you help us this week to live out this creation ordinance of marriage for those who are married, for those that are not, God, that we would not in any way defame marriage by entering into it inappropriately, by taking part in the good gifts outside of marriage, by affirming any other union as marriage. God, help us not to do that. Help us to uphold your word. May you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got you.